Welcome to the Milk and Motherhood podcast, where we're having an ongoing conversation about breastfeeding, postpartum, parenthood, the challenges these can present, and the hope we have for overcoming them. I'm your host, Therese Dansby. I'm a registered nurse, international board-certified lactation consultant, and homeschooling mom of three. I believe that navigating the rough waters of early motherhood with wisdom, grace, and humility can grow each of us into the mothers we long to be. Today, I'm really excited to be interviewing Cheryl Sue Hoy. She is the founder of Tiny Health, which is a company that provides at-home microbiome testing for moms and babies, uh, the whole family, really. They send you swabs and you send in a stool sample for gut health or a vaginal sample for vaginal microbiome testing, which might sound weird, but if you're pregnant or trying to conceive, right at the top of the episode, we actually dive into why the vaginal microbiome matters. And I did tiny health gut testing for my baby and I after a year of dealing with root allergies and histamine issues and just kind of general confusion and frustration with the state of things. And I was feeling a lot of guilt, like maybe my gut health wasn't as good as I thought it was, or maybe this is somehow my fault. And the tiny health testing really gave me some clarity. It gave me a lot of reassurance and it gave me a few very actionable points. Cheryl and I talked a little bit about our results in the episode but you never have to schedule an appointment or meet with a person, which was always a hindrance to me (laughs) with three kids at home and uh, scheduling conflicts. And you can schedule with a person if your results are confusing to you, but I got a really detailed plan with our results and action steps and very specific probiotic brands and strains that would be helpful for me. And they actually didn't recommend any probiotics for my baby. It was really interesting to dive into all of this with Cheryl today because I feel like the report answered all of my immediate questions, but I just had so many like nerdy questions that I wanted to talk to her about. I also want to be upfront with the fact that I am an affiliate for them. I only asked them if I could be an affiliate after I had such a positive experience. Um, This episode is also not sponsored or paid for by Tiny Health in any way. I am just diving into something that I love, which is what all of my interviews are. And I really hope you love it as much as I did. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself for people who don't know you? Yes, I'm Cheryl Suhoi. I'm the founder and CEO of Tiny Health. It's a company I started a few years ago out of my own journey with my two very different births. So I have two kids, a five-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. They just had their birthdays a few weeks ago. (laughs) So I had my C-section of my daughter five years ago, and that was what prompted me to research what the impact would be of a C-section birth to a baby and if there were any health consequences. And, And I uncovered this whole body of literature around the vertical transmission of the gut microbes from mom to baby and also vaginal microbes because the baby is supposed to be passing through the birth canal. And so with a C-section, you're passing, you're bypassing that vaginal birth process. So the baby's first of all, not getting the vaginal microbes. And then also there's antibiotics involved in a C-section surgery that's basically passed on to baby. So I found out that C-section babies do not have the same microbial makeup in the early days as the vaginally born baby. And that 
may lead to a higher risk of eczema, food allergies, asthma. So a progression of allergic disease, diseases called atopic march. So I that was what really got me geeking out on gut health, especially in the first 1000 days. And frankly, I was like, oh no, did I screw my baby up with something I couldn't control? And then I learned that you can intervene. And if you do restore a baby's gut that is imbalanced in early life, that you can actually reduce the risk of eczema, allergies, and asthma. And so I was desperately trying to find a gut test that, you know, can measure if I was restoring her gut health, if I was doing enough of these interventions that I discovered, I couldn't find one. So anyway, fast forward two years later, I was pregnant with my son and, you know, my baby was breached. Both my babies were breached, which is why I ended up with a C-section at first. And so my son was also breached and I was like, oh no, I might have a C-section again. I hope not. And anyway, I was like, this time I want to measure my gut during pregnancy and my vaginal health. Because if the mom is passing on these microbes herself to the baby, I was curious, do I even have a healthy vaginal microbiome? Do I have a healthy gut microbiome to pass on to my baby? And so I set out to start this company. And then thankfully he was born vaginally. So very different births and my daughter does have mild eczema and my son has nothing. So he's clear. And now we have, we're supporting thousands of parents, tens and thousands of parents to bring this transparency into what's happening in their child's early life gut health and also their own gut health. Yeah, I love that so much. I have a vested interest in this because I was a breech C-section baby (laughs) and I have asthma. I have eczema. I mean, obviously all these things aren't always direct cause and effect Mm because all my babies were born vaginally and they have eczema too. So like, because, you know, that's the whole thing about transmission and this intergenerational microbial transfer. So if the mom was born by a C-section, you know, I think in one of your Q&As, There was a question around once something gets wiped out, is it true that it may never come back? So some strains, it is true. So if you never had that from your mom because of a C-section birth, then you actually may not be able to transfer that to your baby as well. So it's it's kind of an intergenerational thing that we want to hopefully intervene and be able to course correct. Yeah, it's interesting that you do the vaginal testing too, because I I mean, I was already postpartum, I didn't do that. But when I was a nurse in a high-risk OB clinic, OBs do a swab in the first trimester. And it was surprising the number of people that came back with just this general diagnosis of like vaginosis, right? And now I'm just thinking in hindsight, like, man, how many of those people could have used very specific breakdown of what the actual like microbial profile was because all they would do is put them on this like mild antibiotic and they would just say it's not an infection it's just an imbalance now I'm like well then why aren't we giving them more specifics about what imbalance this even is I'd be curious what they were swabbing for and how they were diagnosing BV Mm -hmm. because it's not a standard test and with in clinical settings they're using a PCR test which means they're only probing for one specific microbe or two. They're not looking at the entire community. So the danger with that is that you may be misdiagnosing because, you know, sometimes like you're kind of looking at 
a very small picture of your community, whether it's your vaginal community or your gut community with a PCR test. So we use shotgun sequencing, which is really groundbreaking and the gold standard for microgram research now, where we look into your entire community. So we're, you, you know, you've gotten one of our reports and you see all the microbes that are in your gut or vaginal community, which gives you the full picture of what's really there. And then you can really know if it's imbalanced, right? Because frankly, you may have some pathogens and all of us have pathogenic bacteria in our guts and our vaginal canal. But if it's in a small quantity, like if it's like 0.5% of your community, it may not be a problem. If it's 5% of your community, 50% of your community, and you have unfriendly bacteria in that high amounts, yes, it may be a problem. So the relative abundance actually matters. And so there, you know, when it comes to clinical PCR tests, if you're trying to look for very specific bacteria, I mean, you, you'll, you'll find it. It's just, we think it for clinical, like utility, it matters how much is there. Yeah, that's a great point. No, I mean, you have me wondering now, this was back in 2011. So I don't remember, but it's, and I think you're right. They don't swab everybody. This was in a high risk setting. So people were already at risk for preterm delivery. And of course, even those, even those kind of shifts in microbiome, I mean, a lot of people know about GBS, but for example, moms who had GBS in their urine, which is rare, are more likely to have preterm birth. I don't know where bacterial vaginosis falls in that. In our vaginal tests, we do have a, a BV sort of like biomarker. Like if you have this, these microbes that are associated with BV, you do have a higher risk for preterm labor because usually you'd be okay. in a type four community, which is not the community you'd want, which means your, your vaginal community is supposed to be acidic, supposed to be a very acidic environment, and it should be dominated by a microbe called lactobacillus, which is very commonly found in probiotics, which is why if you do pick up a women's health probiotic, usually it will have some lactobacillus species in it. And lactobacillus species produce lactic acid, which creates that acidic environment. So in cases where there's BV, it means that there's an absence or low abundance of lactobacillus species in the vaginal canal. And therefore it's not acidic enough to get rid of the pathogenic bacteria. And when that happens, then you are allowing for pathogenic bacteria to inhabit the birth the the vaginal canal and so it is actually quite relevant to to births you know it there's a higher preterm risk and also your baby is being seeded initially with the vaginal microbes right so again if you're not seeded with a lactobacillus dominant canal then it makes it harder for the gut microbes from the mom to stick in the baby's gut we're getting quite technical here, but it's it's a beautiful thing once you learn about it because you very commonly see, commonly see lactobacillus probiotics in the market and bifidobacteria probiotics as well. So you commonly find lactobacillus in the vaginal canal and the bifidobacteria in the gut, mm. but it goes hand in hand. So we think that the baby should be seeded with lactobacillus from the mom's vaginal canal first, which then makes it easy for the gut microbes from the mom to transfer and colonize in the baby's gut. So technically the mom should have lacto in the vaginal and bifido in the, in the gut. And unfortunately, oftentimes we don't, not oftentimes, but sometimes we don't see that in the mom's vaginal and gut. So, which is why we do ideally like to see pregnancy samples having those things. And if you don't have it, 
you can take action from a dietary or supplement perspective to make sure that mom's gut and mom's vaginal canal are healthy for the best possible birth outcome for your child. Yeah, I love that so much. The whole mission of this podcast is to inform moms so they can make the best decisions. And I mean, even this is probably way more information than anyone's ever gotten from their OB about probiotics in pregnancy, or if they got a BV diagnosis, or they have a history of that, or even if they have recurrent yeast infections in pregnancy and things like that. I mean, it's such a delicate kind of miraculous balance when you start diving into this stuff. So- on that too. I, it's not that your OBGYN, you know, I, I had a question too. How come my OBGYN or my pediatrician mm. know anything about gut health, right? Like, what does it mean? Is the science too new? And what I learned was that there's so much groundbreaking research, academic research coming out about, you know, microbiome research from institutions that are very reputable, like John Hopkins and Washington University, but it takes an, on average 10 to 15 years for academic research to get into medical practice, mm-hmm. probably for good reasons, but sometimes it is slow. And, you know, we're trying to change that through our company to accelerate the process. Cause I want to take control of my, my family's health right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm the mom who's researching and reading these papers. And I'm sure many other moms actually do that too, but it's, there's a danger in misinterpreting those papers or not understanding it completely. So that's why we built Tiny Health. I wanted to assemble a team. We have people from Mayo Clinic, scientists from John Hopkins and Cornell to really then read these papers for us, interpret it for us, distill information into something that is very parent-friendly, very understandable so that people can actually take action now versus wait for, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And I, I love that because most moms want, they want to do something. <laughs> Right. You want to feel like you can do something. And this is just a lifelong lesson for me in motherhood is that you can't do every single thing perfectly. But you hear that phrase like the repair is greater than the tear. I think that's an emotional phrase, but it goes for this kind of stuff, too. Like, oh, I didn't know that or that information wasn't even available to me, you know, X number of years ago. But now I can do something about it. So I think that that's great. So we just dove right in. I'm trying to think where to start <laughs> now. Did you did you breastfeed your children? I did. And okay. that was one of the things I learned from a C-section. The number one way to restore a baby's gut is through breastfeeding. I mentioned earlier, so one way of uh, baby acquiring mom's microbe at birth is through vaginal birth. So, you know, winding back a little bit, the babies are, are sterile in the womb. So they have no microbes, whatever, in their gut when they're born. So think of it as an island that is barren. There's no trees, there's just no plants, nothing on there. And then you're getting, and then where are you getting these trees, the seeds from, right? They're all coming from the immediate environment the baby's being exposed to. So mom's vaginal canal, if not, if through a C-section, usually they're acquiring the skin microbes of the doctor or the mom, the hospital environment. So, so that's kind of like what seeds baby. And then breastfeeding, as I mentioned, you're continuing to transfer your gut microbes to, to baby. It's just such a magical, wonderful mechanism. And so breastfeeding, so even if the baby would miss that vertical transmission from mom initially, you can continue to seed baby through breastfeeding, which is why it's so important. So I ended up, because I learned that, I it was hard, right? I mean, nobody teaches you how 
nobody really prepares you no matter how many classes you take it's, it's still a really tough journey and I feel like I I had a lot of support and a really good lactation consultant and postpartum care from my midwife who really came the first five days every single day to check check on latch or and all that and so I ended up exclusively breastfeeding for the first six months and then up to 18 months for my daughter and then two and a half years for my son and never really formula fed but throughout that journey I had many tears it was really tough it wasn't the smoothest journey we had no latching problems but I think we are not often told that in the early days especially in the second day post-birth babies cry all day long because they're trying to establish the connection with mom so they need to be on mom's boob almost like I think she she was on my boob 18 hours out of <laughs> and that's normal and I think there's a little bit of a miseducation in hospitals now where oh your supply is not enough or you need to supplement with formula and I think it's just unfortunate in, in the sense that actually mom's supply is enough it's just a baby just cry a lot in the early days and they're trying to establish this connection with mom. So they're crying to tell you, I need to be on your boob because I need to suck. There's some feedback between the baby's saliva and the mom's, you know, breasts actually that tells the signals to your brain, you need to produce more milk. And it takes an average three, three to five days to, for the milk to kick in. And what I also learned that they don't tell you is that your baby needs so little milk initially, like a drop mm-hmm. of milk, and that's enough. And there's this pressure in society that, oh, you're not you're not producing enough. You need to feed your baby more. Your baby's crying, and baby shouldn't be crying if you're feeding your baby enough, if your supply is enough. And that's all misinformation, in my opinion. And if you ask any lactation consultant who's well-trained, the baby is supposed to cry and they need very little in the early days. You do not need supplementation, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is important. They eat small, frequent meals in the first few days. And exactly what you said, they are demanding the supply. When you're pregnant, your prolactin is really high because it's just part of the pregnancy hormones. And then once that placenta comes out and the progesterone drops, the prolactin kicks in. And then every time the baby nurses, the prolactin and oxytocin rise. And you're telling your body, like, we do need milk, we need more milk, we need more milk, we need more milk. Yes, mm-hmm. normal, but you're right, in the wrong hand, sometimes that information is like, oh, we got to supplement right now, we got to do this, we got to do that. And, and of course, there are reasons to supplement some babies, but you can use mom's expressed milk, or you can use donor human milk, things that are maybe not impacting their microbiome as much as formula. And this, so I learned in my training that colostrum had more immune properties than nutrition properties even. So it's really high in IgA and it coats the gut. Is that something that you're even, I hadn't even thought about that, the ramifications. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's essentially making it less permeable from the get-go so that when other things, of course, come into contact with it, it's Mm -hmm. less susceptible. Something else you said made me wonder if delayed baths in the hospital made a difference too. Because with my babies, they were born in the hospital, but I did not bathe them in the hospital. I waited till we got home because I figured that vernix and everything was kind of protecting them from the hospital. You know, like you're saying, the doctor's hands, the doctor's gloves, like whoever touches them. But there is evidence, as I'm sure you know, that there is a different like exposure to Mm -hmm. certain 
bacteria levels for babies born in the hospital compared to at home too. Yeah, I didn't even bathe my babies for a whole month. Okay, there you go. There I love that. You know, once your milk comes in, your baby's breastfeeding, they smell so good. Yeah. That, you know, and I knew that the vernix protects them naturally. So mm-hmm. uh, bathing them is is not like like right away, bathing them right away is not something that we recommend. We actually have this birth plan and also a gentle C-section birth plan on a blog that oh. I love there. But yeah, you know, so there's something else for C-section babies that I uncovered in my research, which is called vaginal seeding. It's a procedure that you can do if you are, if you do ever have sort of in your birth plan, a plan B, you should always have a plan B, by the way. So I had that in my birth plan in case I I did have a C-section, which is now there's a couple of studies showing that babies swabbed with the mom's vaginal fluids through, you know, being soaked by a gauze an hour before C-section. So you're kind of like, you know, using the gauze and swabbing manually, swabbing the baby's mouth and face to mimic the birth canal exposure, right? So there's studies now showing that babies born that way or swap with the vaginal gauze do look more like a vaginal born baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did that, you know, in, in a way to hopefully minimize the the hospital germs exposure, which we do see in a lot of our C-section babies, unfortunately. But yeah, that's one way that we would do. And then now knowing more, I would actually check the mom's vaginal microbiome before we do the procedure, because you want to know what's there and what you're really swabbing baby with. So if you have those Mm -hmm. more pathogenic imbalances in your vaginal canal, you may not want to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll link to both of those blog posts, because I think you're right. Sometimes stuff happens. And again, as moms, it's like, okay, so how can I pivot? What can I do next? So, yeah. yeah. So what, what did you do before founding Tiny Health? Yeah. I've been an entrepreneur for a while, not always in healthcare or digital health. This company was really born out of my own experiences. I mentioned in really being that mom who was reading, researching papers and now wanting to empower parents to understand what's going on and, you know, kind of provide tools for parents, not again, not to achieve perfection. I don't think there's such a thing as you mentioned, but it's about like, what can I do about it? Right. Like I, if I can, if there's something I can do to improve my gut health, my, which is correlated with overall health and for the child, their lifelong health really relies on these, these initial you know, time periods. So I just really wanted to make sure I did all I can to optimize my baby's health. And now we're bringing that to, to all parents. Yeah. I, and tiny health, did they just turn one? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. the company itself is about three years old since I started, okay. but we spent two years in R&D. There's a lot a lot of research and studies we ran before commercially launching the product. So we launched our store in April last year in 2022. So it's been one year since we officially launched our product into the world. And, you know, we take so much care because it is, you know, we're impacting really young infants and families, right? So we want to make sure that we have a lot of scientific rigor behind what we do, which is why it took this is definitely a, a baby, sort of my third child, basically. My baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because it's your if your youngest just turned three, then yeah, right. Yeah, Alongside I, started, him. I actually started the company a week after he was born. 
<laughs> you know, you're not my first guest to have launched into a whole different career path immediately postpartum. <laughs> and I did too. I, I, yeah, I pivoted from NICU nurse to lactation consultant after my first. So I have been there. But I, I love Tiny Health. I think I had been looking into gut testing, kind of like you mentioned for a while, because I knew it was important. There's lots of talk about it. I had C. diff in college because I had been on antibiotics for acne for years and years and years. Then I took some antibiotics for an ear infection and got super sick. I mean, I was in the hospital, then I'm on IV antibiotics, on all these other antibiotics for a month. And so I knew enough to know, like, this isn't good. And so at the time, I think there was like Culturel was the big kind of the big new probiotic at the time. And so I took that and some other probiotics on and off over the years, but I could never really find a good place to get an idea of what actually was in there. And so I think I was just fascinated by tiny health. And I had been a little bit overwhelmed by the concept of GI mapping. And also I know and respect practitioners who do it, but I think it sounded kind of overwhelming to me, especially as a mom in the newborn days to like got to sign up for all these consults and, and video calls and tiny health was just immediately appealing both as a nurse and as a mom like in the throes of it so mm -hmm. um, yeah my youngest and I got tested together because he has food allergies and I still need to submit the proof of his IgE allergies to you guys because I did it as part of the free to feed research but the results were just so easy to understand. And I feel like I've learned a lot, even though I was very aware of the microbiome, the importance of all these things like you're talking about, like the seeding and C-sections versus vag vaginal and baby baths and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously I'm a fan of breast milk for promoting a, a microbiome balance, but um, even the concept of like all probiotics don't work for all people and not everybody needs to be on probiotics and things like that are just really brand new to me. So I, I do have some questions to kind of dive into some of those things. So the first one is just, why is breast milk so unique in terms of the human microbiome? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many properties in breast milk that we we may know of, right? Like the micronutrients, the growth hormones, your, your baby's getting energy, the fat and the protein and the sugars from the breast milk. And what's interesting about breast milk that I learned from my research is that a third of breast milk is comprised of HMOs, basically human milk oligosaccharides. And these are actually the prebiotics. If you heard of that concept, basically prebiotics are like food to the probiotics. So the, the breast milk is actually feeding the good bacteria, the beneficial bacteria in your baby's gut. And, and then along with the you know, all the micronutrients and the energy, as I mentioned, and HMOs in the breast milk, you are also, as I alluded to earlier, you're transferring also the beneficial microbes from mom's gut to baby, if the mom still had it, right? Sometimes mom is already missing those bacteria. So in a way, the breast milk is transporting probiotics and prebiotics to the baby. And because of this magical combination, it blooms, it's supposed to feed the baby's gut and the beneficial bacteria, specifically bifidobacteria, should be 30 to 90% of an infant's gut in the first year. And there's a lot of science showing that that's what's most beneficial for the child's gut 
in the first year. And so this was a new thing that I'm like, wow, I did not know mom's breast milk had microbes in it, had, had these beneficial can carry and also the food for the microbes. And that's why it's so powerful in restoring a baby's gut. The caveat here is that like as I mentioned, if mom didn't have bifidobacteria, then you may not be transferring those microbes through breast milk. However, the HMOs in the breast milk is still really important. So if the mom was missing those microbes and didn't transfer to baby and baby had zero bifidobacteria, that means it allows for other pathogenic bacteria to inhabit the baby's gut in the early days. And so if we sequence and we see the baby's gut having no bifs, we would recommend a probiotic that has bifidobacteria, and it has to be one of four or a combination of four specific strains, which we recommend in our reports. And if mom is continuing to breastfeed, the HMOs that I mentioned, the prebiotics will feed the probiotics and allow the probiotics to colonize and bloom in the baby's gut. And that's what makes infant probiotics very powerful and effective if you get the right one. We now see, because we have so much data, that some infant probiotics just don't work. They pass through the baby's gut without changing the community and maybe conferring a transient impact, but that just means you have to keep giving your baby those probiotics. Ideally, you want it to colonize and push out the bad bacteria and you're done. You're, you're, you can stop supplementing after one month. And then we see other probiotics where they say they have these strains, but they don't actually have these strains. So there's actually a paper showing that They've done some validation, like they took 16 probiotics in the market off the shelf and only one out of 16 of them had the strains they mentioned, they marketed, which is stark to me. I'm like, what, <laughs> you know, them, are they lying? Or I don't think the companies are lying about it. It's more like when you, sometimes they may not be alive anymore. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're kind of like competing with each other. So we actually, you know, one of the things that our tiny health does is we can show you actually if the probiotics you're feeding to your infant is actually working and colonizing and if they even need one, because some babies have good bifs from the mom and they don't need anything else. There is actually a danger in over supplementing a child with probiotics because it may suppress the natural diversification as the child grows up and gets more exposure to foods and all that. But yeah, hopefully this this is helpful. It's, it's definitely a little bit more technical. <laughs> yeah, I I, mean, I love that. I I feel like I used to recommend probiotic. You know, they'd be like, oh, my baby's gassy or their poop looks like this or that. And, you know, there are a few brands out there that are fairly reputable that I would just say, this is a great infant probiotic. And I've stopped doing that now because I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what they need. You need, yeah. test, you need testing. Yeah, we had the experience of I was just feeling like oh my gosh maybe I've ruined all my kids because I was a c-section baby I did have you know c diff and this and that and oh my gosh I'm the reason my baby has food allergies and we tested both of us and our results came back reasonably good there was no c diff in my microbiome which I was completely fascinated by and it was kind of reassuring to me like oh okay because gut health is such a like trending concept right and we just want to blame everything on gut health which 
maybe it's true to an extent, but it's such a broad concept. And the last thing a postpartum mom needs to hear is like, you need to work on your gut health when you, you know, when you have a colicky baby with food allergies and Mm -hmm. it's like, what does that even mean? You know? Yeah. 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 So I took a quick peek at your results and was it your son's results? Yeah. So, and that was when he was 14 months old. Do you want me to kind of comment? Yeah, here? if you want to. Yeah. So, so you guys do, you send in your testing, you get results. They're very easy to interpret. You guys also have the option to talk with a consultant, but you don't need to. So I also want to give the caveat. I'm not trying to get like a free consult out of you. Cause I was very happy with our results. I felt like they were pretty self-explanatory and really easy to understand, but yeah, for people who don't really know what Finding out this, we can kind of walk through it. Oh yeah, I guess I realized I didn't. Yeah, explain it. It's it's basically a stool test. So you're changing mm-hmm. these diapers anyway, and yes, we send you a swab that you can quickly sample. It's like a Q-tip, but there's a drying desiccant in it actually that preserves the sample. So in route, we give you a prepaid mailer. You just drop it off any USPS mailbox. And in a couple of weeks, actually, we're now down to a two-week turnaround time. Okay. You get results back on all the microbes in your, your child's gut. We, obvi- we have a test for mom, too, and dad, and older kids. And we have something for everyone and a vaginal test, too. So basically, the whole family can check in and learn about their gut health and what's there and if there are things you can do to improve your gut health. So, so we specialize in mom and babies in the first 1,000 days because that is that crucial window for immune modulation, immune system development for lifelong health. And the science is really the strongest in the first year. Doesn't mean that an older child can't do it. So when Isaac came to us, he was 14 months. And so at 14 months, his gut looked pretty good, as you mentioned, right? And it may be a combination of your breastfeeding. And also you probably supplemented him with certain probiotics. I had not. Well, so when he was like six weeks old, his stools changed and it's funny because in hindsight, I'm like, he, that might've been the only baby that I've ever had whose poop looked like it actually should have, but it was a change. So I like bought some Mary Ruth's infant probiotics and started giving them to him. And then he got really colicky and I was like, oh my gosh, now I broke you. So I stopped those. So it had been over a year since he'd taken any probiotics. Oh, so he, he, didn't, he didn't have any. Okay. So mm-hmm. Mary Ruth's is unfortunately one of those that we don't see working. Like it. Okay. okay. Well then I didn't break him. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's yeah. kind of a, we do not recommend Mary Ruth's uh, okay. because it just, we just don't see it working in the baby's yeah. gut. But, but either way, we wish we had his earlier sample in the early days, especially in the first year. It could have been that his gut looked very different early on and had a bit more pathogenic bacteria, which may be the reason why he has some allergies now. It could be a genetic component too. So again, ideally we have a baby sample in the first six months to really have clues for you know, what's going on and how to best prevent some certain conditions, right? 14 months, sometimes signs are lost because he's already eating solids. He's already, you know, but, but at least we can see if there's still triggers that are giving ongoing inflammation from a gut perspective. And, you know, frankly, it was just acetate propionate. It was borderline everything else looks great in his gut. So it sounds, it just seems like from a microbiome perspective, he is, his gut has healed in a way in that sense. And, and he's on the right track. And then in your gut, there were some signs of like, you were missing bifidobacteria. You had low amounts of, you had some of it, but that is, bifidobacteria is very sensitive to antibiotics. 
So if you had, and I had been nine years since I got antibiotics, but I took a lot of them before that. So yeah, and that's one of those that I mentioned early in the podcast that once you don't, once it's killed off, it's very hard to come back. Given that bifidobacteria specifically, specifically very sensitive. This this is one of the beneficial bacteria that once it's killed off by antibiotics. So if you never got it from because of a C-section birth, you you may never get it in your life. That was me. That was me. Okay. I I was vaginally born, but I realized I was formula fed and had early life antibiotic. And the earlier you were exposed to antibiotics, that's when it, it may never come back. The older you are, the more robust your gut is. When you take antibiotics in later in life, your gut is more robust in that it bounces back really quickly and, and really nicely. So most of the time you're fine. But the younger you are exposed to antibiotics, the more it's like those microbes may never come back. So it's mentioned, it's interesting. You mentioned ear infection. I had an ear infection last weekend. So you're hearing a little bit of, uh, I'm still a little bit like congested. Most ear infection are virus, viral mm-hmm. and not bacterial. So when you, when you're, pediatrician is like, oh, your child has an ear infection possibly and prescribes antibiotics. The number one thing we ask parents to do is check with a doctor if they're sure it's bacterial, because if it's viral, your antibiotics are not doing anything, right? And most of the time it is viral. And so I went to actually into the Minute Clinic in CVS and they tested immediately for strep because you, you don't want, mm-hmm. uh, I had like sore throat as well. And they thought it could have spread to my ear and they had no clue. There's no tests, unfortunately, for yeah. ear <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's your next business. <laughs> yeah. So like, thankfully I was negative for strep. So I knew it yeah. wasn't material in my throat. So chances are that your infection is viral. Yeah. I just waited it out. I, I bought garlic oil. You can mm-hmm. buy it at Whole Foods and I, and it wouldn't, it was very painful for two days, but I persevered and I did a lot of supplements. I did a lot of immune building supplements and after two days it was gone and three maybe three days right so it's sometimes it's hard as a parent you're like you want to take action you want to do something mm-hmm. and when when someone prescribes antibiotics you're like okay I have something to do and you you do yeah. it you you're also not realizing that the impact that it's doing on your it's killing all my groups not just bad bacteria mm-hmm. but good bacteria too and sometimes if you give your infant or child antibiotics in early life, those microbes may not come back. So use it very carefully and make sure it's an infection that's bacterial and try to wait it out and try to do supplements and try to approach it from a natural remedy. Like garlic oil can be used for infants too. And so we actually also have a useful blog for ear infections. Okay. You can do before resorting to antibiotics. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because that probably that and then of course, antibiotics and labor are probably the two biggest reasons that babies are exposed to antibiotics in the first few years. Yeah. So how long does it take a baby? It just takes weeks of, of bifidobacterium supplementation, right? If if they're low. So say I'm giving it to a five year old or a 10 year old, like how does that length of time change? Yes. So in a baby, because baby's guts are so sensitive and they colonize, if you're giving them the right strains, that's from a reputable company, for example, they do colonize really well, but it has to be paired with breast milk, HMOs and breast milk. So if you're no longer breastfeeding and you're giving your baby a 
even if you're giving your baby a good probiotic, it, they may not colonize. So then what we usually recommend is an HMO supplement. Of course, you have to find something that is approved for your age. So there's very few infant HMOs that is approved. And if you're switching to formula, there are formula that has HMOs, mm -hmm. but very little. So I can't remember, remember the actual amount, but it is almost negligible. Formula companies will advertise adding HMOs. They don't yes. quantity, <laughs> yeah. which it's, it's really a, a, a touch, you know, and human milk has so much more HMOs, but, you know, some is better than none. So we've seen, you know, bifidobacteria probiotics colonizing baby's gut a little bit better with an HMO formula compared to a conventional non-HMO formula. So there's something there. And then when a child's older, so as you mentioned, a five-year-old kid, and if they have zero bifidobacteria in their gut and you want to, well, you want it to colonize because it's still helpful. It's still good for us adults and older kids to have bifidobacteria, ideally around five to 10%. We, you can help it colonize. There are HMO supplements now for one year old and above that you can easily find. We we like Begin Health for toddlers as well as Lear Origin for adults. And these are all recommended in our action plan if you need them. Mm -hmm. And if you do a probiotic and a, an HMO supplement for a month, it should colonize um, our guts as adults. Okay. I've seen mine. So I had zero and this is what I learned. Okay. My, I had zero. It's good. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I'm missing certain crucial essential microbes to transfer to my baby. So I did the BIF probiotics plus an HMO supplement and now I'm at 13%, hovering yeah, okay. between 8 to 13%. Okay. And I don't need to take ongoing probiotics because I know it's colonizing, yeah. giving me ongoing benefits. Yeah, and that's encouraging because probiotics are expensive. Uh, good, the good ones are expensive too, and it's it's like oh, you don't need to be on that for the rest of your life. So, uh, yeah, I th I do think it was interesting though. So my bifidobacteria was low, but babies was fine. Yeah. So so, and you you say you didn't supplements, and Mary Ruth's does nothing to the baby's gut. So it may have come from dad, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to test this gut too and see maybe he yeah. has. We well, he he has his sample submitted. I talked oh, to him. Oh, amazing! So much weight on mom, right? Like there is mm -hmm. is a strong connection from a scientific perspective from mom to baby because we are birthing the baby and breastfeeding mm -hmm. the baby and and all that. But dads actually play a role too. So as the infant grows, the kisses from dad, and if you're sharing food and you're living in the same household environment. You do share microbes with other family members, which is why we have something for everyone. And you're improving gut health, not just for the child, but as a family, because ultimately you're going to feed your child food that you eat. So, and as the child grows older, it becomes less about milk and more about diet, right? So mm -hmm. your microbes that are in your gut are most influenced by diet and supplements and lifestyle changes. So Frankly, I think the parent has to also work on their gut health um, if you want your child's gut health to be good because your child's microbes will look like yours. When, when we get family samples and we get a child who's like five years old, oftentimes their guts are identical when we get the first mm. identical with the mom or dad. And when we look at it without knowing who's, who's who, I'm like, these are definitely family members <laughs> who are living yeah. together. Versus okay. it's sometimes interesting because you get a dad who's maybe working 
outside and eating different foods, like maybe he's having breakfast and lunch outside, he's spending a lot of time different, then you see those microbes being different from the mom and the child. So super mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, I was curious as you're talking, are, do you often see siblings all looking the same as each other too? It depends. Again, most okay. of the time, yes. But if the child is spending a lot of time in different school and eating different foods, mm. and they could look different. Okay. But okay. most of the time, it's the share, the sharing between the the siblings are are very similar. Okay. Yeah. And your your recommendations also include, yeah, like you said, diet. I know one of the things on my son's was like blueberries and he loves blueberries. So mm -hmm. great. And you have also like spending, yeah, spending time outside in the dirt or being around animals. Like those are other recommendations that you guys have too. No, I want to talk about that because yeah. from parents, oh, such generic recommendation. Of course, mm -hmm. we want to spend more time outdoors, but we what we when we jump on a council call with parents we we usually say that we our ancestors used to live on farms and we used to be outdoors like 90 percent of the time and spending time with such a variety of like na natural environments that has no ideally no pesticides and you're touching animals all day long and now we spend 90 percent of the time indoors right mm -hmm. So when we make that recommendation, some, a lot of times it's correlated to the, the diversity in your gut and we're not seeing the same, the diversity that is, you know, like what our ancestors had. So there is a book actually called Missing Microbes, which I think everyone should read. Okay. It does talk a lot about how modern lifestyle, including antibiotic use and C-sections and formula feeding is impacting our gut meaning we're missing microbes. Like, you know, I mentioned, we talk a lot about how we don't have this anymore, right? That's one of the microbes that's disappearing from, from modern society because we're, we're just not spending as much, you know, uh, apart from birth and all that, we're not spending as much time outdoors with animals. So when you have low diversity in an adult gut, your gut is not as robust, right? And it's just more susceptible to pathogenic bacteria when you're exposed to it. So you do want to make sure you have a good balance of these certain strains of crucial microbes. And then, you know, I think one of the, the interesting things I uncovered too is a baby's gut has, it should be low in diversity. You, you might find 30, 50 microbes in a baby's gut in the first six months and first year. And then over time, and it should be very low in diversity because the only thing they're eating is breast milk, should only be breast milked. In fact, if you if we supplement with formula and there's no breast milk involved, I can see a difference in a gut. We can see mm. different patterns and there's more diversity in a, a formula-fed infant's gut. So it's really interesting in that in the first six months, you want very low diversity. And post six months, when the child's eating solids, you want that div diversity to shoot up. You want more microbes from food and environment, enriching and training the baby's immune system so it's a very like like nature has its way of very progressively developing the baby's gut like it's very immature intentionally initially and it should be and the maturation speeds up post-solid introduction post-weaning and that's what you want so yeah if that makes sense like so yeah lots of time in nature lots of exposure to pets and animals and that that's all very necessary to for for a good immune system. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it makes total sense to me. I'm just nodding and nodding because I have an interview with Sally Fallon from the Weston A. Price Foundation. And we talk a little bit about living foods because, and I'm not bashing on formula because sometimes formula is necessary, but formula is an inert substance, right? And so we talk about milk storage safety. So breast milk that's freshly pumped can be out at room temperature for eight hours and it's safe. But if you have mixed formula, it is dangerous to leave it out for eight hours. Basically, exactly what you're talking about. There's nothing in the formula to attack or balance out or compensate for the one, you know, drop of whatever bacteria from your hand got into it, you know, whereas breast milk is living, it has microbiomes, it has microbes and then and it's interesting the composition yeah. of breast milk and again nobody taught me this but it like you know if you pump at one month and you mm-hmm. pump at yeah that too months it's mm-hmm. totally different because it changes according to your baby's needs so if you're actually falling sick your your breast milk is creating those antibodies to protect your baby against whatever your, your bugs you're getting. So your baby doesn't get it. Right. So you're kind of your baby, your breast milk is changing every 24 hours, according to what's happening with your baby, with yourself. It's just a really magical thing. So it's interesting too, that we see in cases where mom is still breastfeeding and supplementing with formula, it could be 50, 50, it doesn't matter. It could be, it could be like 70% formula, 30% breast milk, the breast milk is still doing wonders. So it's, it's impactful that it's, it doesn't mean that you you have to just do like breastfeed 100%. We, we do see, it's very encouraging that any amount of breast milk supplemented with formula is protecting the child's gut. So, you know, there's no judgment. Like, you know, there's many things that can happen. You know, you might need to supplement, you might need to formula feed, but if possible, keep breastfeeding with the supplementation because there are there's just outsized benefits from a little bit of breast milk along the way. Yeah, I love that. I'm always telling moms any breast milk is better than no breast milk. And so I'm glad that research is backing that up now. And we you can see that. You it's all yeah. you can see how it's impacting from our results from our from our reports. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So is there an ideal age? You mentioned ideally before six months. Is there, what's the earliest age that they can get tiny health gut testing? Because I feel like it's not right away, right? Seven days. Oh, seven days. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So seven days. basically right away. You don't want any time before that because that's meconium and we may not get enough bacteria. Yeah. But if you have a newborn and the seven day sample would give you the clearest picture about what seated baby at birth, which from a science perspective, technically we get the most clues about, yeah, like, you know, why, you know, if there is a condition later in life, like an allergy or something, you know, we can often point to that 70 sample for reasons why. And then as you, as I mentioned over time, because the baby's gut is getting more diverse because, you know, you're, you're on breast milk initially. So it's still very clear. The longer the baby's on breast milk, the clearer the signs are in the gut for what's going on. And so then starting six months with solid introduction, or maybe weaning from breast milk or formula feeding, it starts to get more complex, right? The baby's gut has more bacteria coming in. And so therefore the signs of what should be there and what shouldn't be there becomes a little bit more blurry, but still pretty strong in the, the six to 12 month transition because the baby's not going to establish solids immediately. It usually takes a few months. Mm-hmm. 
Like yeah. my son didn't really eat salt until nine months. It's yeah. like, it's a slow thing. So it's still possible to see signs for allergies or prediction, biomark predictive biomarkers for whether or not your, your child has the signatures to that shows the high risk for certain things. And then post one year, it's harder to see, to say prediction, like from a microbiome perspective, right? But we can still check. I always say it's never too late because you want to see if at one year, two year, three years, if the child is, the child's gut is maturing in a way that is, you know, kind of on track, right? Like, you know, we, we do see some children at 18 months, two years old with very imbalanced guts mm -hmm. and they have severe eczema or allergies. So sometimes you, you don't see, like in Isaac's case, we don't see many clues anymore. He's probably, mm -hmm. he's got his healing. He's probably on the right yeah. trajectory. I mean, that's good news, right? It's, you know, it's, yeah. at least you can rule that out. So maybe it's genetic yeah. or maybe other factors, right? Mm -hmm. So I always say it's always good to have peace of mind. Is microbiome contributing to your child's symptoms and condition? And if it is, you can do something about it, right? And mm -hmm. we do see definitely a high correlation with severe cases and the microbiome imbalances. And we, we have an action plan you can do. And if not, it's not that our test is useless at that point. It's just more like, okay, peace of mind. It's not the gut. I don't need to give my child probiotics at that point because he doesn't need it. He, she doesn't need it. And let's tackle other things like maybe toxic chemicals in the household or mm -hmm. maybe not enough exposure to sunlight and other things you can do, right? <laughs> yeah, and I love that. And you're right, people, I mean, it's like when you tell somebody to like reduce the stress in their life, it's like, oh my gosh, that, like how can these things possibly make a difference? They're so vague, but but they do. Those are the things that make a difference. Getting outside, doing tummy time on the grass, you know, letting your kids run around in bare feet, not spraying your yard. I mean, those things do make a difference. One thing that I was surprised though with our results was, like I said, I was aware of what, what gut bacteria are, why they're important, why they could be out of balance, but I wasn't really in the know about these things. Like short chain fatty acids, like is it butyrate, propionate, mm -hmm. acetate? The, are those like derivatives of, those are things that certain microbes produce. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So in a way, your microbes are, you know, there there are 38 trillion microbes living in and on us, right? And mm -hmm. most of them are, are in the gut and it's the most well-studied um, and the most correlation with health or disease. So one of the functions of your microbes is to digest fiber. So the plants that you eat, the, the, the vegetables and all that, all the good stuff. So we have a metric called fiber digestion. So do you have the microbes that can digest these fibers in a way like the way you get these microbes is if you eat more fiber, then you are naturally having more of these microbes around to digest it, right? So if you're low in that amount, then yeah, adding more fiber to your diet will help. The next step of the fiber digestion is that they, the, these microbes produce a byproduct called short-chain fatty acids. That's now, there's a, a whole huge body of literature showing the benefits of short-chain fatty acids in human health. And one of the core one of the types of short-chain fatty acids is butyrate, as you mentioned. There's a few types. We report on butyrate levels, propionate, and acetate. And so it's a fermentation product of the fiber digestion from these microbes. And it's the main energy source for cells that line your gut. They keep your gut healthy. 
and it has many health benefits to keep that inflammation out, to keep your gut lining, your gut barrier function. So when you hear things like leaky gut or gut inflammation, it's because the gut barrier isn't strong and it allows for pathogens to pass through. And usually in those cases, we see butyrate function being very low. And maybe there's not enough fiber or the different types of fiber, a variety of fiber in your gut that is maybe contributing to that. So one of the most important things in adult gut that we look for is butyrate function. And I think I was looking, you were a little bit low on that. Yeah, mine was low, yeah. Yeah, you're kind of borderline low. So I will work on that. I think of all of the three things in your gut to, that we pointed out you should work on, I think butyrate is the most important and then if you're wanting to get pregnant again, the bacteria, because that's what you're passing on to your baby. So the fact that you're low on it could have meant that, again, I don't know, like you, we've seen a little bit of it passing to, through a baby. If you have none of it, it's more urgent to work on it, but you have, you have a little bit of it. You have 3.8%, which is not bad. I had none. <laughs> so I yeah. had worse, worse bifidobacteria than you, but yeah, butyrate is important. And for an infant, you don't need butyrate because butyrate comes with solids. So in babies, you want mm. acetate to be really high. So okay. acetate is what is produced as a fermentation product of bifidobacteria digesting breast milk. So it's all like if you have low bifidobacteria in your baby, your acetate production from your baby is probably low, but that is the most important thing in a baby at birth. So it's weird because it's like you want acetate to be high initially at birth. And then by one year, acetate will probably be lower if you're not breastfeeding anymore. And butyrate should be really high. So it crosses over. And so in your gut, you had all three flagged. You actually had butyrate, propionate, and acetate mm -hmm. flagged. But I would say in an adult gut, acetate is less important. You should really focus on increasing the butyrate function. So would me being low in bifidobacteria be a reason why Isaac was low in like acetate potential? It could be. Even um, though he wasn't low in bifidobacteria. Yeah, his immune strength, he's now, well, at this time of sampling, he was, he had about 5.7% bifidobacteria. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of in the average category. So he, he okay. had okay, you know, we have great, you have sufficient high amounts okay is kind of like average you could do better and the need support is in the red where you're out of range or too low you need to really work on getting these levels up so okay. Isaac had average and for his age it's probably okay it's an optional thing like you can add more bifidobacteria probiotics to his supplementation or you can work on diet you know if you you're not a fan of adding more probiotics but I think, yeah, his acetate is borderline low, is very borderline. So I think he's okay. It's not like I wouldn't like rush to the store to get, you know, a biotics. Mm -hmm. But if you, if I think at this point, we would say symptom driven, right? So if your child mm -hmm. has allergies or he's reacting and uncomfortable, I would have the probiotic on hand and give it to your child in those times where there's more symptoms and mm -hmm. see it's okay. a little bit of experimentation, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, see if those probiotics would help with symptoms. So I think even with these results, right, I think there's still some work to do to experiment, but mm -hmm. at least we have the tools for, okay, what can I try? What fruits can I offer or, or reduce? 
and what supplements can I give my child to see if they help with symptoms? Because ultimately, uh, apart from knowing what's going on inside, that is a signal for lifelong immune health, you also want to reduce symptoms because as a mom, you're dealing with a lot and you want your child to not be miserable, miserable and be happy and be comfortable. Yeah, I, I love that. And we did, you guys do spell out very specific brands for certain strains. And we did buy this midge infant probiotic and we did start it. taking it. So we need to, we need to retest. And then I, I don't know if you caught that you, I didn't buy his H, you should supplement with an HMO supplement. So Even I, if he's still breastfeeding. Oh, if he, okay. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah if, he has still, yes. For me too. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, perfect. Yes. At 14 months. You go, or you're probably yeah. <laughs> older now, a year and a half. He is 17 and a half. Yeah, almost. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. And your so your breast milk is will continue to feed the probiotics, and it yeah, should come. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Do you want to touch on any of the other questions I had before we dive into some listener Q and A really quick? Let's see. I covered a lot of it, actually. Yeah, I think we've I think we've covered a lot of it. So yeah, to back up Tiny Health, you do the swab, you send it in, you get your results. They're very actionable results, very easy to interpret. And then you have the option to retest. What are the recommendations for retesting? So retesting is more of an art than a science. It the answer is always it depends. So if you have a chronic condition you're working through, then we might just even create a program for kids who have eczema or allergies and whatnot, or gassiness and colicky to, to like kind of frame as a three-month program. So you, when you come in and test, you want to get a baseline sample to check in what's going on. It doesn't matter what age your babies or your child's at, or even yourself. It's good to have what we like to think of as a baseline sample. What is What does the gut look like now? And then we see what need support, what areas may be deficient or overabundant and whatnot. And then we have an action plan for you to work on those things. And then in three months, we want to check in again, ideally, and see if you've managed to improve those metrics. And we internally with our data, we see that in almost 80% of our resamples, we've managed to improve a baby's gut, which means we've managed to improve the beneficial amount of the beneficial species specific ones or we've kind of like reduced the amount of things that need support so we have really good data that our action plans are working when you do follow it and then if the three months sometimes the baby's gut is is very deficient then needs more time so sometimes we may need to extend that to a six month kind of program and check in again because sometimes like probiotics is, is very experimental things. Some brands, some strains work for a baby really well. Most of the time it does. Sometimes your baby needs certain like different brands. And so we may need to do another cycle and switch and see the second time around if it, it helps even more. Right. So sometimes it's a six month thing where you do three samples within six months or nine months. And then after you've achieved sort of an ideal gut, which we, we do see us helping a lot of babies. You want to switch to a maintenance mode where maintenance means twice a year minimum just to check in if you're an adult or older child and just want to maintain. But if you have a younger child and you're a lot of things happen in early life, right? Like you said, your infections, which often gets prescribed with antibiotics. And then if you do have to give your child any medication, you want to see What's your baseline right before treatment? And then post-treatment, you want to see how 
the antibiotics has affected your child's gut and has it bounced back? What strains are now missing or now like, you know, you, you, you want to, you want to see how much you, you can do to restore your baby's gut, right. Or your child's gut post antibiotics. So that's another really good reason why you, you can, it's good to have that baseline sample and then the post-treatment. And then if your baby is weaning from breast milk completely, the community shifts tremendously. So you want to check in again at the point of how your baby's gut look, transitioning from breast milk or formula to solids is another time point. That's again, a dramatic shift. Uh, Entering daycare, dramatic shift, right? Kids get sick a lot because they're getting exposed to a swath of of bacteria from other kids. They're live, like salivating. They're like sharing toys and Mm -hmm. they're, it's good. It's actually really good exposure, but you want to make sure your baby's immune system is strong and you're getting a good balance when you do enter daycare. And then beyond that travel, there's just so many things that can happen in a child's life that as they're getting to be a more picky toddler, we run into issues like constipation. Then a lot of toddlers get constipated because they're not eating enough fiber. So you, you see that often reflected in the results. And then we have, we, we, then our action plan switches to give you tactics, like my secret weapons, my smoothies, like you can <laughs> a lot of fiber in smoothies and add yeah. a bit and then your kids will swallow mm-hmm. it up, right? So there's tactics that we would switch to, to, to help with a parent in that age. So hopefully that answers your, your question. Like, you know, there's a more frequent sampling because you're trying to tackle a, a chronic condition and trying to get back in balance and once you've gotten that you switch to a more maintenance mode and it then depends on lifestyle factors and what happens to your your child or yourself yeah I love that and that makes sense it's just a tool in your toolbox for like you said if oh where did this constipation come from or what why are you having an eczema flare-up after you haven't you know had it for a while and yeah I think it's, it's a great tool we moved to Austin, Texas from California a year and a half ago, and I checked in my whole family's gut took a plunge. So okay. like moving can be stressful, but also okay. you're exposed to new food chain, food supply chain, water source. Uh, maybe we got our reverse osmosis filter fixed a little bit too late and we had water that had stuff yeah. in there. that may have affected our gut. So there's definitely like, I know my whole family's gut health took a hit moving here. And now we're testing again to see, okay, now I was looking for farmer's markets here. And like, where do I get my food source? Where do I get my organic suppliers and my local farms and things like that, right? So that could be a huge shift again to another reason to check in. (laughs) Yeah, okay, yeah. So I have a few Q&A from listeners one was just really quick. Do you provide testing for moms in other countries or is it only the U.S. right now? We do U.S. and Canada. And occasionally we will support someone in the U.K. or Australia who write in. And, you know, we used to support international, but we can't track packages to and from. And sometimes we can't rely on international shipping. It takes longer. You have to pay more for the shipping costs. And sometimes customers abroad complain that they blame us for missing packages mm. not within our control so we yeah. decided to turn it off because we got customers that were just un- unfortunately not very grateful our customer support team has to do 
5x more work, 10x more work to support an international customer. So we actually kind of like, we tell them we can support you if you promise us you're not going to blame us. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like yell at us for missing things. Like we make them, we have disclaimers that we will support you because I want this to be accessible. I frankly want this to be available worldwide to anyone, but you just have to understand we just have no control over international shipping. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So if somebody's really invested in this, they can reach out to you and kind of do an agreement with it. Yeah, that's great. And we get a lot of questions like, oh, how long does the sample, like, is it, is it fine if it's in the mail for two weeks? We've tested it two months, three months, pretty stable. Like this, there's a drying desiccant in the swab that preserves the sample really well. It doesn't overgrow bad bacteria. That was one of our top concerns. As long as it's not in very extreme temperatures for too long, it's it's fine. It, it's very stable. Okay, that's good to know. That's great. And the next question we already covered, just species being lost. So it's not impossible to repopulate, right? But you can lose species you in your gut. So bifidobacteria is the most sensitive, uh, okay. but most important for baby's health. Yeah. So yeah, and that is just really hard to come back if you have none of it, right? But we managed to do it, like the HMO supplement I mentioned, reenacting like breastfeeding. You're kind of, you're an adult and you're like taking HMO supplements to as if you're drinking breast milk, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, maybe you, maybe you didn't get that. Yeah. Yeah, Um, and it's managed to repopulate using the HMO supplements. Okay. Really yeah. Uh, there, and there is the whole theory. I'm sure there are whole podcasts on this, but seeding versus feeding, right? Sometimes like you're saying, if you have anything in there, if you feed it the appropriate foods, sometimes that's even better than giving a probiotic. I love that seed and feed. You are yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, you, you, you can't just seed, you have to feed it too. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Somebody asked if you know that you have something like H. pylori or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth during pregnancy. What what do you do for that if your results come back for something like that? Is it again, mostly promoting the good stuff that you're low in to kind of let your body do the work? Yeah, we are a fan of increasing beneficial rather than using antibiotics or very harsh herbs to you know, kill, because you just don't know what else is impacting. We are more fans of foods and, and, and spices because usually it's very selective. It does, it's not like antibiotics where it's killing everything, right? And that's the danger of it. But we actually look into this for you. If we do detect H. pylori in your gut, we actually have a couple of things that we recommend. Our scientific team goes through such such scientific rigor. We, we make sure it's human studies, not just animal studies most okay. of the time. But there's definitely like one study where there's three clinical trials showing that adding more broccoli and broccoli sprouts can help eradicate H. pylori. And so there's three studies backing that. So that's one of our recommendations is to do that. And then there's another one with one clinical trial in humans showing that licorice root extract is very good Mm. at eradicating H. pylori. Another one is black human seed or oil supplement, three clinical trials showing that combining black human with honey improve H. pylori eradication. 
So the detailed protocols kind of in our results, if you do have it, and then adding cinnamon, so spices, sometimes there's a lot of benefit to spices. This is in an animal study, so not as strong as the human studies, but I mean, there's no harm adding cinnamon, but again, there's differences, right? When you get cinnamon, there's cinnamon that's been on the shelf for a while, and it probably has no longer the the same properties compared to fresh cinnamon. So all the time when when you're thinking about these remedies, think about how fresh the source is, where the source is from, is it from a reputable company or place? And also, has it been on the shelf and preserved for a long time and may not have the same effect as it's intended to be? Yeah, that's a great point. I love that because when you're working with moms and babies, you can't throw really harsh or extremely detoxifying or whatever protocols at them. I mean, it's just not the population for that. So... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love, and, I love, yeah. And always check, you know, I think these recommendations are for a regular adult who may not be pregnant. So always yeah. check if they're okay for pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And, and if not, then like you said, you test and you just feed the good stuff that you're low in or supplement the good stuff that you're low in. So one question that I had had several clients that I preferred to Tiny Health for like consistent poop issues. And they come back and they say like, basically- the test looked fine and they didn't suggest any probiotics. So are these maybe the people that we mentioned earlier that you're like, they're not taking it seriously, like getting outside. Is that kind of what you'd say with with this? Mucusy stool is still a mystery in some sense. It is a little bit more with maybe, maybe not always, but with cow's milk protein allergy type Mm -hmm. things, I think. I, I don't know without looking into this, person's yeah it may be the child is a little bit too too old at the point so we don't see like I mentioned the older the child gets the sometimes it's too complex and we can't see the 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 very clear signals as we can in an earlier baby but it just means maybe there was something initially that could have pointed to reasons why and the child's gut is at a point where they don't really need probiotics anymore but the maybe the earlier gut had maybe caused a lot of inflammation and that persisted in a way. So really we wish we had all baby samples in early life and we're working towards this being a standard of care at birth and in the first year at least, you know, so we can truly prevent some of these conditions. But again, like I think there are so many other factors. It could be a diet thing. It maybe isn't a microbiome factor for the mucousy stool. It could be a, a kind of a, a leftover from infancy. So things that it's not easy anymore to change, unfortunately. But in, in a lot of cases, we do see the mucousy stool correlating with gut. And, and then an intervention from a, a probiotic could change it so but not always right like I said eight out of ten cases we we do see improvements but the two out of ten we just don't know yeah yeah well yeah we can't we can't know everything that's one of the hardest lessons of motherhood I feel like Mm -hmm. would you say the same thing with eczema kind of somebody got tested and they don't have any super clear deficiencies Mm -hmm. same thing maybe you kind of missed some of the earlier profiling and so much is is in the first year it goes back to bifidobacteria if you're missing the bacteria then any number of different pathogenic bacteria can inhabit and our hypothesis is that different 
pathogenic bacteria, depending on what type was there in early life, could lead to either the eczema symptoms or the more protein allergy or the more like different ex exhibitions of, of it. And we, we don't know, like sometimes you can see tra trails of that in the one to two years of age or two to three years of age, but just the further away we go, it's just hard to see, right? Mm -hmm. um, but again, we want to check in on ongoing inflammation. If there are other things, like if there's at two years of age, if the child has some high pathogenic bacteria, then we want to tackle that, you know, right away. So it's still good to check in and see if if the gut is still contributing to eczema symptoms and whatnot. Like my, my daughter, she still has eczema. And now we see like she has food sensitivities and we see a lot of short chain fatty acids missing from her. Like she's flagged on butyrate, acetate and propionate. So we're working through a lot of the dietary stuff. She's entering the picky, picky toddler phase mm -hmm. and not wanting fiber. So we're adding more in her smoothies and things like that. So there's just things, you know, as your, your child changes, you may not find something in this really tough age of between like, say one to three years. But then beyond that, when your child's gut is quite established, you, you see clearer signs of lacking fiber and things like that in a five-year-old. And for example, that we can see in our adults. Well, Cheryl, this has been like incredibly full of information. I think this is going to be really helpful. Thank you so much for talking with us. Do you have any encouragement for the mom listening who feels like she's just hit a wall in terms of maybe GI symptoms or food allergies or anything like that? Yeah, so many people do come to us when they feel like it's like the last, you know, they don't know what else to do and they check in. And sometimes most of the time we help, sometimes we don't. But I think it's about, like you said, right? There's no such thing as being a perfect mom. It's just a checklist. Okay, I'm trying my best. And I do, you know, I, I tackle it one day at a time. I try my best. And, you know, it's like this never ending list of things you could do. So the best way I've learned to tackle as a mom, I'm, I'm pretty type A. I'm like, I'm going to do everything today kind of thing. But I've learned, let me pick a thing at a time. So this season, I'm going to do, get rid of all the plastics and this two quarters. I'm just going to focus on plastics. I'm not going to think about soap and everything else. And the next season, I'm going to change out all my cleaners. And then it's like, what do you want to tackle this season? Right. It's like one at a time. And, you know, and it's almost like elimination. Okay. Well, check the gut and it's not an issue. Then let's move on and check something else. So that's how I approach it. I think that's just more manageable to take yeah. it in inside this. Right. Yeah. I think you, <laughs> I think you have to approach it like that. So what is one thing you're doing right, right now in motherhood? Oh, wow. Oh, this, like, yeah. Uh, you know, I, soap was my thing. Like I, we, we were traveling a lot over the holidays in the winter time. And I realized all the soap was antibacterial, which I don't want. Cause I know mm -hmm. how sometimes these antibacterial soap has chemicals that are long lasting. They stick around for a long time. So I'm like, I started carrying soap. Like I started to bring our own soap to our hotels and Airbnbs. And so that was my thing this season is to swap out soap and shampoo and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, especially when you were talking about the microbiome, that makes perfect sense. So can you tell us where people can find you? I will link to like the Tiny Health Instagram, the Tiny Health website. Are those the best places? Those are the best places. And even I am, you know, I read 
80% of the emails that come through hello because okay. I just am so obsessed with customers and helping parents and what they're concerned about what are they asking the feedback on the products so I read a lot of emails and DM you know if you DM us on Instagram most of the time I would have read it so I'm very available and we built this company by parents for parents mm-hmm. so I want to con- continue being very close to our our parents to help families Yeah, thank you so much. I can tell. I've just, I've been happy with the whole experience. So thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure speaking to you and the work you're doing to educate families. Thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in to Milk and Motherhood today. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to some of the things we talked about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends or leave a review to help other people find us here. As always, you can find me on Instagram at happy.mama.healthy.baby or on the internet at happymamahealthybaby.co. See you next time.